We are in the fourth chapter of Judges today, but before we get there, because I realize it's been eight weeks since I last preached here, so uh, I, I imagine some of your memories might not be as good as mine either. So especially if you're joining us for the first time, we love, I love expository verse-by-verse preaching. Um, we did a 19-week series, I think, through the book of Joshua, so uh, we love just unpacking the story. And so if you are joining us for the first time, I want to give you uh, some things you need to know. And of course, um, all of these sermons are, you can subscribe to Lynchburg City Church on Apple Podcasts. My friend Matt Kirby, shout out to you, Matt, who's listening right now. Uh, he just found this out. I'm like, yeah, we've had Apple Podcasts for like four months. So uh, they're all there. But um, the story of the judges picks up after the story of Joshua and the conquest God's promised Israel this land. It's theirs for the taking. Joshua, the leader after Moses, comes in. They take the land. They take really the vast majority of the land. Not quite all the land, but they take most of the land. Part of the reason why they don't take all the land is given to us in chapter 222 of Judges. And this was to test the subsequent generations to see if they would be obedient as their ancestors were. And of course, they're not. And that's the problem in the book of the Judges. In the book of the Judges, the people are supposed to come in and finish settling, finish settling the land that Joshua and their ancestors had taken, but they don't. Instead of going in and driving out the enemy inhabitants, they settle, literally and figuratively. They settle. They come in, plop down, and they think, yeah, we're good here. We don't need to drive out these other inhabitants. This is going to work just fine. And that's a problem. You see, one of the reasons that they were told to drive out the inhabitants of the land going back to the time of Moses is because these people, these people are notorious. They have a huge track record of turning the hearts of God's people away from him. And so here's Israel thinking, oh, no, it's okay, I got this, right? We'll just move in here. We don't need to drive them away. We'll just, we'll just, we can work this out, right? Like so many people today, it's like, oh, well, you know, I know there's going to be certain substances at this party I go to, but I'm, you know what? I think this time, this time will be different than the last times. Or I'm going to go to my girlfriend's house on a Friday night and start a movie at 1130. This time will be different than what happened last time or whatever it might be for you. Right? There they are, and they're, they're like, I got this, right? And of course they don't, and what happens is what happens throughout the entire story of Judges. They turn Israel's heart away from God. Israel turns their back on God. They begin to rebel. And so as a result, in the book of the Judges, God raises up foreign nations to oppress them, as we see today, to treat them cruelly. And then the people cry out to God. God hears their cries, and He raises up a judge uh, a deliver. A deliver is probably a, a better uh, breakdown of that word judge because these people aren't handling like civil disputes. They're there to provide deliverance from the foreign nations and then they'll drive out the foreign nation and then Israel, well, they're good for a while. And then the cycle is just going to repeat itself over and over again, each time getting a little bit worse than the first time. This is the dark days of the judges in which we find ourselves today in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And the people of Israel, notice that word, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. One of the preceding judges that we have already talked about. They've fallen back into the cycle. Some of you have fallen back into this cycle. 
Like you have really veered off the course these last few weeks, maybe since the holidays, since Christmas, since New Year's. You're not where you should be. And like Israel, again, you've done what was evil. Maybe no one around you even knows, but you know in your heart, you know that things with you and God are not as they should be. Even if you pretend, they're not. Again, they have done what is evil. They've relapsed back into this pattern of behavior. Again, they've done this. And again, really shows that there is a fundamental, unresolved spiritual issue. And I say unresolved spiritual issue because our goal as the people of God has to be more than just behavior modification. It has to be. Sometimes we, we turn Christianity into just do this and don't do this and things will be good. And there certainly are things we should be doing and things we should not be doing. I'm not going to play that down at all, but it would be like someone going outside in their grass or taking care of their garden and there's weeds and they just pull the top part off. Unless they deal with the root, it's just going to keep coming back. It's just going to keep coming back. Some of you guys wonder, like, man, I keep falling, I keep relapsing back into these old patterns of behavior. I, I, I keep saying, nope, this is going to be the last time that that happens. There's this unresolved spiritual issue. It's just as true for Israel as it is maybe for some of us who are listening right now. And of course, that's one of the problems because these judges, these deliverers, unfortunately, they really deal mainly with the external problem, the the threat of the foreign nation. There's an underlying heart issue that Israel has. And there's an underlying heart issue that I imagine may be just as true for some of us today. Maybe we just ignore and we only focus on what's on the surface. Well, it hasn't worked out that well for Israel, and I can't imagine it's worked out too well for those of us in here today who find more parallels than we like to already in the first opening single verse. Well, here's what has happened as a result. And the Lord, verse 2, sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth, Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. A quick note on Jabin, king of Hazor. Some of you, some of you may remember there's a Jabin king of Hazor that's mentioned in Joshua chapter 11. We did our study through Joshua. And so here he pops up again. So it's the same guy because I'm pretty sure that Jabin king of Hazor got lit up. And he did get lit up back in Joshua chapter 11. Israel was outnumbered a million to one. God comes through, as God comes through for his people. They get victory. Uh, Jabin, king of Hazor, was kind of leading this coalition. Uh, I called them the Northern Alliance geographically. That's where they were against Israel back in Joshua 11. They defeat them, and it says in Joshua 11 that they actually burned Hazor to the ground. And yet here Jabin, king of Hazor, pops back up. How do you reconcile those two differences? And I think probably the easiest way, for the sake of time that we have today, that we can reconcile the Jabin, king of Hazor, and the Jabin, king of Hazor here that pops up, is in light of our introductory remarks to this story. The fundamental failure on the part of Israel to obey God. 
Finish settling the land. Finish driving out those inhabitants. They don't do that, of course. And in their failure to completely consolidate control of the land, it certainly is plausible that a member of the royal household had come back and reasserted his rule. Jabin is not the name of an individual. It's a dynastic name, just as Pharaoh or Caesar is not the name of an individual. It's a dynastic name. And so I think that's at least how we deal with this anomaly, you might call it here. But he's come back for all intents and purposes. He's reasserted his rule. And then the focus shifts to this man named Sisera. Sisera is not a Canaanite name, which many commentators believe showcases Jabin's further power to be able to attract this essentially LeBron James type five-star mercenary general to take and command his military, his 900 chariots of iron. This is why Israel can't do anything, because he has advanced technological superiority. You might have rifles and handguns, but if you're going against M1 Abram tanks, like, good luck. So then it begins to make sense. Like, oh, 20 years, why didn't they do something? They're being treated cruelly. And if I was being treated cruelly for like a hot minute, I would do something. They can't. They can't. And more to the point, they can't, because as the text says, God has given Israel into the hands of their enemies. That's why. And so Sisera, this mercenary general, commands this this fleet of chariots which keeps Israel really in bondage in a way. Twenty years they're treated cruelly and they cry out to God. Verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Deborah, her her name means bee, as in like a bumblebee. That's what her name means. And she's judging Israel at that time. She's a prophetess. That is, she is going to serve as a spokesperson for God. That's what it means. She's, she's going to be a spokesperson for God. And just a quick note as we begin to unpack this text. Deborah is going to be this brilliant light in the dark days of the judges. There are so few good examples in this book. This is one of the good examples. One of the really good examples. Verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. The narrator, and I say narrator because we're not 100% sure who's writing this, but the narrator, be it Samuel or whoever, invites us, the reader, to view Deborah in the same way that we might view all the other judges based on the, the, the words being used here. She is a female judge, female deliverer. And she's also one of the few positive deliverers that we have examples of. And oh, by the way, she's the only deliverer who is already involved in the service of God prior to her engagement in deliverance activities. She hasn't begun the deliverance activities yet, but look where she's at. She's, she's already involved. like She's already serving God. People are coming to her for judgment. Once again, this English word judgment can convey all sorts of Judge Judy type mentalities. Don't think that, right? 
That's not what they're coming to her for to handle civil disputes. They're coming to Deborah because they're looking for answers. They have a national crisis, okay? 20 years. It's hard to even imagine. But 20 years, they're, they're living under oppression from Jabin, king of Hazor. They want answers, okay? They don't care about other minor legal disputes. They want answers. There's a big problem here. But once again, as I said earlier, this is what I really like about her and how she stands out to me when I got to this verse. She's already involved in service to God before her deliverance activities even begin. Now, talk about God's grace for a moment. It's a really amazing thing, and it's good news for many of us who may be like Pilgrim on his way to the celestial city. Maybe we've detoured a little bit these last few weeks. Maybe we've detoured off the path that we should be on this last month. I think God's grace is something maybe you just need to have encouraged in your heart right now. Um, for those of us who maybe we're not presently walking with God right now, or we're not as we should be, just kind of limping along, I think God's grace is a very encouraging thing to think of. But that's not Deborah. Okay? Like Deborah is this amazing testament of this person who is right where she should be. She's displaying faithfulness right now. She's displaying consistency right now. Like, other than the God in this story, she's like the one constant. It's super rare. It's just as rare today as it was at this time in Israel. Like, it's not a matter of potential. We love to talk about potential. Oh, and uh, let me tell you, this guy, he's got so much potential. This girl, she's got so much potential. I often hear that word used like that. And potential's not a bad thing. Potential's a good thing. But oftentimes, people just sit on potential. They don't do anything with it. They can do such great things for the kingdom of God, and they don't. Just flush it down the toilet. Potential, once again, not a bad thing. But sometimes potential is used as an excuse, and sometimes we make potential an excuse for other people, especially when they're not walking with God. Oh, if they only... Yes, I know, if only. But that's what distinguishes Deborah in this story. She is already doing the work of the Lord. She's already making it happen right now. That's what I love about Deborah. That's what really popped off the page here. And as a prophetess, once again, she's communicating God's response to the people's cry. They're coming to her for judgment. They're saying, Deborah, for 20 years this has been going on. Give us hope, Deborah. Give us an answer, Deborah. Some of you, you're looking for answers. You're wondering how much longer you've got to be in this valley for. Deborah's going to tell them the answer that they seek. Deborah's going to tell them where they can find hope. She's going to point it out to them. There's a lot of people who need hope in 2019. I suppose any year that's true, any month that's true. But they need, they need hope. Among, amongst the suffering and the hurt and the pain and the sin in this world, people need hope. They do. I don't know if you guys keep up with the news. I keep up with the news. I listen to Al Mohler, the briefing, about every day. And that's current events through a biblical worldview, if that's what he says. Um, any New Yorkers in here? Okay, yeah, a few. It's maybe some of you saw what happened in the news. 
New York lights up the One World Trade Center building pink in celebration of the now uh, constitutional um, amendment that they added to the New York Constitution, which now everyone is constitutionally has the right to kill a child now in the third trimester. So if you're born at 4.30 p.m., but you kill them at 4.29, you're okay. So uh, you think the world doesn't need hope amongst people like Governor Como, who call evil good? Yeah, they do. They do. Just as much today as they did during this time. And they're coming to Deborah looking for answers. The world needs answers. The world needs hope. So who's going to tell them? Right? Like Deborah's this great example. Oh man, Deborah's this great example. So be like Deborah. Like if you know Jesus, you know the hope. The hope's in Jesus. The hope's in Christ alone. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we should have died. He paid the price we could not afford to pay. So many people get bogged down and they think, well, if we can just win this election, or if this party can just be in control, or if this party can just be in control, or if we can just get the Supreme Court stacked with this many of these judges, then they can maybe overturn these different laws. I'm not saying those things would be bad things. But that won't give you real and lasting hope. And that's exactly what people need. Like, they need to know about Jesus. Like, there are people... There are people, I'm going to go on a limb, that are currently in your life that you walk by every day who need this sort of hope, and they're waiting for you to open your mouth like Deborah to point it out to them. And that's exactly what Deborah's doing. That's exactly what she is doing. You know what's also interesting a lot in this verse? There she is, under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. And people are coming to her. I don't want to go... One of the things I like to do when I'm preaching is just slow down, because I think when you read the Bible really fast, you miss certain things. They're coming to Deborah. Why are they going to her? I ask myself when I'm preparing this sermon, why are they going to Deborah? Where are the leaders? Where are the priests? Where are their spiritual leaders? No mention of them in this story. Which further, which further shows the spiritual tragedy of these people. Going all the way back to verse 1, where again they've done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, they've relapsed, right? And this again, back in verse 1, is underlined the fundamental unresolved spiritual issue. You can pull the weeds all day long, but unless you deal with that root, it's just going to keep coming back. You're going to keep relapsing, keep falling into these cycles of sin. You're like, yep, I know what that is like. And the fact, I think, that they're going to Deborah showcases just how far gone Israel is during these dark days of the judges. And it happens. It happens in many mainstream Protestant denominations today. Where many spiritual leaders, many pastors, once again, 
especially in the age of the sexual revolution, they call good evil and evil good. Oh, woe to them, Isaiah would say, Isaiah 5.20. Woe to them who replace sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. And that's exactly what many religious leaders do today on things that are clearly so black and white in Scripture. It's a very dark time in the history for the people of Israel. Thank God for people like Deborah. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak. Here comes Barak, new character, the son of Abinoam from Kedush Neftali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw, I being God, I'm going to draw Sisera out, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Hey, Barack, you get that text? You get that email? You get that voicemail? Hey, do you, you get the call, right? Just kind of coming along, reminding him right now. And more than just reminding Barack, she's given him some encouragement. She's given some encouragement. God's called you, and go, but oh, by the way, you don't need to worry about being the best military leader. That's okay, because God's essentially already won this battle for you, Barack. He's going to draw Sisera out. Oh, yeah, I got it. He's got 900 M1 Abram tanks, right? He's got 900 iron chariots. You're no match. You haven't been for 20 years. doesn't matter because God's going to give you this victory. And we almost see like the enemy general Sisera as this puppet that's controlled by God's hand. Just as God sold Israel into the hands of Jabin, now the events are turning. And Jabin, Sisera will be given into Israel's hands. Make no mistake. God is the one controlling this situation. God is the one orchestrating these events. And they're going to happen. According to his will. So Barak takes some encouragement. This is happening. But Barak does not respond the way that he should. I assume that he's probably scared. I would be too. We've been under General Sisera and King Jabin for 20 years. I get what you're saying, right? Like you're telling me these, God's going to do all these things, but sometimes even when we know those things are true, there's this disconnect between our head and our heart. Like I've heard John Piper say that's like the longest, like 12, 18 inches, right? It's like, okay, like I know what God's word says, but man, like I have a hard time feeling it and believing it. And that's where Barack is at, I think. Like Deborah is telling him this, but oh, this is hard. I think he's probably a little scared. And so here's his response. Verse 8. If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, yeah, I'm not going. And so Barak resists the call. Barak resists the call. This story has very similar overtones to the previous sermon about Shamgar. I don't know if you remember that. Um, back in uh, the one preceding verse to chapter 4, Shamgar goes out and kills 600 Philistines with an ox goat, and that's it. And, and 
from that sermon, we, we learn that there's a good possibility Shamgar at all, one, was not even an Israelite, and two, had no idea that he was doing deliverance activities on the part of the Israelites. And yet the problem with the Shamgar story is very much the problem here. Shamgar should not have been out fighting these Philistines. Israel should have been out fighting them. Barak should be stepping up to the plate, but he's not. He resists the call. Or rather, he puts conditions on it. So, I'll do it, God. But Deborah, you've got to come with me. You've got to hold my hand. I get it. He's scared, okay? I understand that. But we do that. All right, God. And then we usually, to make it seem like we're not putting conditions on things, we usually say, all right, God, if you answer this prayer, that's how we, that's how we make it so it doesn't sound so like, well, I'm not being like Barack, because I, if God, as long as God answers this prayer, let me tell you, Oftentimes, oftentimes in our lives, idols hide behind prayer requests. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for something, the spouse. It's wrong to pray. God, give me that. But oftentimes, idols in our lives hide behind forms like prayer requests. And so we say things like, all right, Lord, I'll step out in faith. I'm really scared right now. They've got 900 iron chariots. I know you're calling me. I feel led to step up. I feel led to serve. I feel led to do, to go, whatever. But I want you first, right? I want you first to answer this prayer request of mine. Right? So, so you first bring me a job. You first bring me a girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse. Not wrong things to pray for, Okay. I just think sometimes we're really hard on Barack and we want to jump all over him and when we think a little bit harder we realize I have a lot more in common with him than I actually would like to admit if I'm being honest. There's a need. There's a need. We got to go fight these people. Barack, God's called you. Some of you, God's called you to do certain things and you just are like, no, I don't want to do it because that's uncomfortable because that's going to be inconvenient for me. That's never really how I thought I saw myself. I always saw myself doing X, Y, and Z and this is really more like A, B, and C. And so, yeah, I just don't think so. But Lord, if you maybe do this, then okay, then I'll, I'll know that this is really from you. That's Barack. And I imagine it might be many of us in here or listening right now. So, here's Deborah's response. Next verse, verse 9. And she said, okay, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. In other words, he's going to miss the opportunity to be blessed by God. Okay? He's going to miss out on an opportunity of blessing. He's going to miss out on glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Verse 10, And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Verse 11, new character. Now Heber, the Kenite, oh, by the way, the Kenites are allies with the Israelites, but something's happened here that's affected that, at least for this man, Heber. He's separated from his other Kenite clans. 
the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and he pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kedesh. Verse 12, when Sisera, the general, was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, once again, it raises the question, well, who told him? I think the narrator is wanting to point us back to Heber. Heber apparently is, I think very plausibly, has tipped off Sisera of Barak's troop movements. Verse 13, Sisera then calls out his chariots, 900 of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Man, pause right there. Does not the Lord go out before you? If I was in Barak's shoes, that's exactly what I would want to hear before I'm going out against a bunch of M1 Abram tanks with rifles and handguns. Does not the Lord go out before you? That's pretty encouraging. Especially when you feel afraid to maybe do or respond to a certain leading or, or direction in your life. Does not the Lord go out before you? Like the same God who's going out before Barak, that's, that's our same God we have today. Does he not go out before you? For those of you whose faith is waning. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera, right? Who's doing this? Not Barak. God's making this happen. He's routing Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyam. And the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Seventeen. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Eighteen. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. Heber is introduced. He very well may have tipped off Sisera, the troop movements. The battle is unfolding that we know Deborah had already told us was going to happen. It goes very quickly. Somehow his entire fleet is destroyed. And so he gets on foot. He's on the run. He's fleeing, running northward until he comes to the tent of Heber. And there was peace between them. That's what verse 17 says. And this word peace is more than just, hey, man, like, we're, we're cool. Like, we're Facebook friends. Like, it's more than just friendly relations. It's a covenantal term. Like, there's some sort of agreement that's been made between Heber and Jabin. And so, perhaps in Sisera's mind, he thinks, well, I should be able to find refuge there. And then he comes, and Jael's there. Her name means mountain goat. Not sure if there's any spiritual significance there, but that's what her name means. But notice, notice how strange this is. Okay? Think about social norms being violated right now in the ancient Near East for this time period. Maybe you're at least thinking this through. So, 
She, JL, goes out to meet Sisera. She initiates this conversation. She invites this man, who, as far as we know, she's never met before, to come into her tent. All sorts of social norms being broken. And it doesn't seem to be odd or unusual for Sistra. Maybe he thinks because there's peace, that's okay. I can overlook these social faux pas. And like King Eglon from Judges chapter 3, Sisera is going to be seduced by Jael. Innocently, he's going to enter her tent and he lets her cover him. Verse 19, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened his skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. He asks for water. She gives him milk. Uh, Commentators believe that there may be a reason for that, maybe not, possibly, to get him to fall asleep. And then she takes the tent peg, which I imagine it must have been pretty big because it says she nailed his head to the ground. So not just like nail it through it, like it went through the ground. His head is nailed to the ground. And Deborah, her prophecy has come true. Glory has escaped the grasp of Barak. And yet, the narrator portrays Barak as doing everything he can to negate what the Word of God said. Notice verse 22. Barak was pursuing Sisera. Like, I mean, he, you just imagine he is riding down hard. Maybe I can catch him if I ride harder. I mean, he is, he is in hot pursuit. Some of you guys, you might be in hot pursuit of some girl you just met three days ago. Like, think like even more so right now, right? He's riding down hard. He's pursuing He's pursuing. He, if only he can catch him, then, then maybe he can negate what the word Deborah gave. And yet I'm thinking of like our small group memory verses. At this point, I'm, I'm thinking of Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Answer, no one. His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Answer, no one. Or Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Oh yes, Barak's going to try to thwart his purpose. He's going to try to turn back his arm. He's going to try to annul his plan. It's not happening. Make no mistake. God is the one controlling this situation. I don't want you to walk out of here today and miss getting a glimpse of how big your God is. He's not small, he's huge. 
God is the one controlling the situation. God is the one orchestrating these events, and they're going to happen. Barak's going to try to negate it. He's going to ride hard down on Sisera's heels. To no avail. It's going to happen just as the Word of God says. And so, Jael meets Barak, says, here's the guy, I killed him. Her actions are a little bit of a mystery. I mean, I don't know, imagine how her husband feels, like all these societal rules broken, uh, not to mention whatever formal agreement that they had, that's, that's not holding up any longer. And yet the, the narrator, if you notice in the story, offers no hint of spiritual motivation on the part of this woman, Jael. Why, why did she do this? Like, there's no motivation whatsoever that she had any concern about Israel. She seems to act mysteriously of her own reasons. And yet we see divine providence demonstrated where God incorporates and ordains the actions of human beings to bring about his own plan, his own glory, and the salvation of his people. Right? It's not just that he knows what Jael's going to do, like, but that he has in some sense ordained her very actions. She may not know what she's doing. Just as Shamgar, he might not have known that he was going to be later on written about as one of Israel's deliverers, but God knows exactly what he's doing right now. And so we come to the close of the story. And make no mistake, the conflict in this story, it's not between two nations. At least the primary conflict is not between two nations. The primary conflict in this story is the same conflict that we have today. I'll frame this for you, because sometimes we think our, our conflict that we have today is between political ideologies or, or radical Islam or terrorism. I'm not saying those aren't conflicts, but those aren't the primary conflict. The primary conflict in this story is the battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Don't miss that, because if you miss that, you've missed what these people miss, which leads them to go and cycle and recycle back into this. Where God raises up a deliverer, drives away the external threat, then they're good, and then they fall back into this cycle again, like verse 1, again, relapsing. That's the primary issue here. There's a battle being waged. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And there's Deborah, this bright and shining light, and she's there, the constant really in this story, serving God from the very beginning, being faithful to God from the very beginning. And she's not the hope, she's not the answer, but she's going to point them to the hope where they can find it. Where they can find it. And that's God. If you, didn't, if you, if you missed that, right? Barak, God's calling you because God is going to give them into your hand, right? God is going to deliver us. That's her pointing. God's the answer in all of this. He's always been the answer. Deborah's the example for us. Be like Deborah. If you're not, thank God for his grace. But be like Deborah. 
If you're not, if you veered off the path, that's okay. Get back on the path. But don't, don't make the mistake. Right? And Paul talks about this. Romans 5. Should we continue to veer off the path? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. If, if you veered off, that's okay. Get back on. Let Deborah be the shining example. She's pointing to people. This is where you can find hope. This is the answer. I think this is why we, we need to be witnessing. Like when was the last time you even you, you talked to somebody about the hope that you have in Christ? When was the last time you told somebody? You've got the hope. When was the last time you told people about it? We're talking about living missionally. Talk about this a lot of small group. God's placed you in Lynchburg, be it for six more months or 60 more years, like you're here. Live missionally. Live intentionally. Like, you need to every day be looking for opportunities. Every day praying for opportunities. God, give me opportunities today to share my faith. Give me opportunities today to be like Deborah, to point people to the hope that they can find in you. There are people who are waiting for you to come and talk to them. Waiting for you. You might not even know them. You're going to meet them this week. And they're just waiting for you to say, Hey, my name is Joe, or whatever your name is, and start a conversation. And maybe invite them, and they're going to come next week. Or they're going to come to small group. And they're waiting, right? Because like the people in this story, 20 years, maybe their whole lives, has been a part in rebellion to God. And they're like, I just, I need, like, they wouldn't use these words, but if they knew this story, they would. They'd say, I need to find someone like Deborah to point me to the answer. Don't walk in here and be like, oh yeah, Deborah's a great example. No, be like Deborah. People need hope just as much in 2019 as they did in the ancient Near East in Judges chapter 4. Don't be like Barak and put conditions on your obedience to God. Yeah, there might be specific things he's leading or calling you to do. But I'll tell you what, bottom line, I think one thing we can all emulate is Deborah. So as the worship team comes forth, I want to pray for us today. Lord, I pray that you would crush our fear because it is fear that often keeps us from walking in faith and obedience to you and the call that you have. Specific calls, yes, but certainly general calls that you have on all of our lives to to be like this shining example, to be like a Deborah. We need your help, God. We thank you for your grace that's available to us because some of us, we maybe veered off the path, but Lord, I pray that we would not waste that grace, that we'd, Lord, have a heart, a heart that maybe we have to deal with right now, some of these even unresolved spiritual issues in our own life that we've never really repented of, we've never really dealt with God. I don't want to be like these people and just cycle after cycle, each time getting worse, Lord, falling over and over again into Satan's traps and temptations. 
Oh, Lord, help us to be like Deborah. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Not like Barak, putting conditions on things, but stepping up and trusting in you and your provision. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.